Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're very happy to have Giles McDonough on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, After the Reich, The Brutal History of the Allied Occupation. When I was growing up, my grandfather used to tell me the story of the German POWs who had been captured in the North Africa campaign in 1943 and been taken to the United States, in this case to central Kansas to work as farm laborers. He was he was in charge of a platoon of them. Apparently many of them did not want to go home in 1945 when they were given the opportunity. Having just read Giles McDonough's new book, I can understand why, because conditions in Germany were absolutely horrendous. Everybody has, of course, heard of the atrocities committed by the Nazis during the war, but the atrocities committed by the Allies after the war in retribution for the Nazi crimes are less well known. Giles does a good job of setting the record straight in this regard. It's really quite an eye-opening book because it turns out that None of the Allies are really guiltless. The Russians were the worst of the lot, but the Americans, French and British, also were involved, as were the Czechs and the Slovaks and the Serbians and a whole bunch of other people who meted out a certain and very harsh revenge against the Germans after the war. I don't know whether justice was served or not. I'll leave that to you. I enjoyed talking to Giles today, and I hope that you enjoyed the interview. Here it is. Hi, Giles. Hello. Hello. Uh, how are you today? Well, I'm well. I'm tired, but I'm I'm fine. Uh, it is rather late in the day. Where are you exactly? I'm sitting in uh, North London, um, looking out in, over my front garden. That's a, that's very nice. I'm I'm sitting in my office, looking over my computer screens. Uh, it's not really very enchanting. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Giles McDonough today, and uh, we'll be discussing his book after the Reich. Uh, the Brutal History of the Allied Occupation. Uh, I've read the book, of course, and uh, I was... Um, you know, this is a difficult book to characterize. It's extraordinarily well-written and researched, but it is in many ways difficult to read because some of the things in it are incredibly horrific, uh, and we will talk about that in due time. But it's a subject that has been neglected, I think because so much light has been put on... Um, German atrocities during the Second World War that uh, most people don't know uh, what the Allies, and particularly the Russians, whom I've studied for a long time, did to the Germans after the war. I knew a little bit about it. I know a lot more about it, and uh, I um, and, and I was disturbed by the whole thing. But in any event, uh, Giles, let me ask you to begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, where do we start? Um, I was born here in London in 1955, um, and uh, I come from a, a very mixed family with some of its origins in Central Europe. And uh, I grew up here in London, and um, I studied at Oxford, and then later in Paris, and. Uh, I have been a journalist, and I am now a professional historian, but I'm not attached to any particular university. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is something Americans have difficulty understanding. I've actually interviewed a number of your colleagues who are professional historians but are not attached to a university, Um, and I've gotten uh, queries from, uh, again, many of my countrymen who don't understand exactly how one does this. Maybe you could just say a few words about that. Well, I think that probably the, with no great knowledge, the American system uh, is in many ways more like the German system, and there's a sort of seriousness about um, 
that academic things are must all take place in universities. In this country, there is slightly more of this tradition of the man of letters, which is an old tradition here. Admittedly, it's, it's, it's got a bit sort of curled at the edges now, but you know we do have we have a, an old tradition of independent scholarship, which in Germany and America there is less of. You know, scholars are found in universities. Mm-hmm. Yes, most of the independent historians I know work at Starbucks, uh, so it's, it's, it's very difficult to make a living, although I try to encourage people who come here for PhDs and other places I've taught to try this because I know for a fact that the history parts of most big publishers' lists sell very well, and uh, I think that people don't know this and therefore attempt to get an academic position when, if they have a certain amount of talent and gumption and stick-to-itiveness, they can uh, make a living doing this kind of thing. I, I enjoy the books that uh, professional historians who are not attached to universities write uh, very much. They are often, uh, almost always, much better written than the books that I myself wrote. I, I doubt very many people have read my treatise on uh, 17th century European travelers to Russia. I don't recommend it, uh, but uh, the books that I uh, have read by people such as yourself have been much more wide-ranging, um, almost philosophical in a way, and and, uh, and better reads, so you uh, have compliments from this side uh, of the Atlantic. Let me ask you this. How did you come to write this particular book? Well, it, that goes back quite a long way, because it goes back, I suppose, to a book I wrote on Prussia, which came out here in 1994, in which I tried to tell the story of this uh, state of Prussia, and in the closing bars of that book, if I could say that, um, I tell the story of the end of Prussia in 1945, because after all, you know, that, those were the bits the Russians reached first, if you like, East Prussia, Silesia, Pomerania, those areas that were part of the Prussian homelands. And after the war, there was a, 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 a notorious control council law that was passed which abolished the state of Prussia but in doing so heaped scorn on it as the country that was the originator of so many wars and therefore it was uh, it had de facto ceased to exist um, and so Prussia became the scapegoat if you like for this aggressive Germany that they wanted to get rid of but of course, it was an easy scapegoat to make because uh, at the uh, conference in Potsdam, they had already assigned most of the famous parts of Prussia to Poland uh, and even a little bit to Russia. And all that was left of the uh, Prussian homelands, that is Brandenburg, uh, had been subsumed into the Soviet zone. So Prussia as such, with all its traditions, love it or loathe it, had been very, very effectively destroyed um, by the post-war settlement. So that is the origin, if you like, of the book that I wrote, that I broadened it out um, to include not just what the Soviets did, but also what the other allies did. Maybe you could say a few words about the literature that um, was available in any uh, language, I suppose, about the post-war treatment of Germany. I I, I know of Norman Neymark's book about, it's about the Soviets in uh, occupied Germany, but other than that, I don't really know of any literature. Well, there, there, there is a little bit, but as you said, it's it's thin on the ground. Uh, Norman Neymark, uh, thank you for correcting me, I can call him, call him Neymark, but I would have no idea how to pronounce his name. <laughs> but it's an excellent book on the Soviet zone. Um, there is pretty well nothing on the French zone. There's an excellent book by, uh, she, I saw her last night, Patricia Meehan, um, on the British zone. Otherwise, most of the literature is completely out of date. Um, and there are some quite good books on the American zone. Um, and I, in a way, I think probably the American treatment is the best because I don't know, it's, it's the beginning of American involvement in Europe after the war, having stayed out of Europe after the First World War, and therefore there's a lot of examination of that. And so the strongest sources, if you like, are really looking at the American zone. There are lots of things that we don't know about our own zone. You ask me questions about atrocities carried out by the British. There are certain questions that I have to leave unanswered because I simply do not know and I don't know where the information would be. Um, for example, 
we know about rapes carried out by American soldiers. We don't know anything really about rapes carried out by British soldiers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. Let's talk a little bit about the evidence then. Um, one of the things that struck me in reading the book is the number of memoirs that were available. There must be an incredibly rich memoir literature, mostly in German, uh, on this um, on this period. What what what? Tell, talk a little bit about those memoirs and also other sources that are available. Well, there are these memoirs. I, I suspect that in Germany, people are in two minds about reading them. I mean, one of the this has been translated into English in the 1960s, and, and I think I've said in the bibliographical note at the end of the book that it is one of the most moving books in any language ever written, is the diary of Count Heinz uh, Lehndorf, um, called an East Prussian Diary in England, which recounts the whole story of what happened once the Russians arrived in Königsberg. There were quite a lot of books like this, published, I suppose, in the 50s and 60s. Um, and a lot of this, and I think this is where some people smell sulfur, a lot of this was actually encouraged by a ministry that used to exist in Germany, hmm. which was the uh, the um, uh, Ministry for the Expellees, which I think was eventually, I may be wrong here, um, uh, wound up by Willy Brandt as part of his Ostpolitik, mm -hmm. as well as uh, um, uh, attempts to create a rapprochement with the Soviet Union in the early 70s of getting rid of the bones of contention. It was Willy Brandt who stopped, um, who uh, recognized East Germany. It hadn't been recognized by West Germany at all before then. So this ministry actually interviewed people and uh, took their depositions and a lot of these things were published in a number of big bound volumes, which you can find in German libraries. Mm -hmm. And some uh, small uh, offcuts were also published in English. So you have all those depositions. A lot of people want to say that they were exaggerated or false or whatever. It rather depends on your ideological view of what these people are saying. Many Germans <coughs> don't see it as a worthy thing to actually even remind themselves or even think of this time because uh, there is a process of atonement in Germany that's very important, particularly to the left, that Germany should not seek to excuse itself in any way for the monstrous acts carried out by the Nazis, and therefore to draw pity on themselves or sympathy is entirely wrong. Um, this, I think, is very much a view which one understands, um, that Germans should feel revulsion for what went on during the war, but on the other hand, there's no reason why it should affect you and me not being Germans. Mm -hmm. We might uh, choose to see that this was unjust, and we're not calling for any sympathy for the Germans. We're just calling for objectivity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. So let's talk about uh, Allied plans for Germany um, after the victory. By 1944, certainly they knew that um, they were going to be victorious. Uh, maybe you could take us through the various schemes that they had designed uh, for Germany after the war. Well, the most notorious of these, of course, was the famous Morgenthau plan. Um, Henry Morgenthau was, what, he was um, Secretary for the Treasury, wasn't he? And uh, uh, this was finally dropped by Truman, who didn't really approve this at all. But it, it did the idea of the, past, the pastoralization of Germany was perhaps the most extreme plan for Germany. It really sort of involved Germany being cut up into small bits and being denied any form of industry. So this, this um, and um, uh, what it spawned were a number of uh, general staff instructions which carried on informing uh, American policy until... Uh, the reversal of American policy in the punishment idea after the war, which comes about the Stuttgart speech of uh, James Burns, uh, which eventually turns around American policy and sort of coincides really with the beginning of the Cold War. So that initial hot phase of punishing the Germans was very much, as I say, informed by the Morgenthau plan, which still, although many people say, well, it was never put into effect, it did influence the ideas of the uh, first Americans to go into Germany. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, one of the things that struck me was the, uh, how to best put it, 
the the adoption of uh, what were really sort of massive programs of social engineering and, and ethnic cleansing uh, immediately after the war. How, how did they decide that, um, just to begin with the most obvious case, that Poland would be moved to the West and with it, um, I guess, millions of Germans? How was this decided? It was yeah. decided at, at Yalta, though it has its roots uh, earlier, I think, Tehran, but um, it was decided, of course, uh, finely tuned at Yalta. <clears throat> and I think that the, the old story is that Churchill sort of demonstrated with knife and fork how it was to be done. Um, but uh, the idea was that I think the Soviet Union had a much more old-fashioned view of what the war was going to end up with, that it was going to be rewarded by territory. And also, it's been suggested that Stalin really what he wanted was a, a, an adequate buffer zone that would protect his country, and he'd already got his eyes on Poland. Remember, traditionally, of course, Russia had always dominated a large amount of Poland um, since the time of the partitions. So uh, uh, Stalin was very anxious to have his buffer zone back so that you know, he would be safe from any further attacks like Operation Barbarossa, which was launched mm -hmm. by Hitler in 1941. So his slight um, neurosis about the idea of the Soviet Union being attacked again was to be satisfied by the granting of this buffer zone. And at the same time, he was going to be rewarded by various um, uh, bits of territory that appealed to him. Of course, one of these was uh, part of East Prussia, which was another means of getting him uh, an ice-free port. I'm not sure that Königsberg actually is an ice-free <laughs> port, but um, you know he had his eyes on Königsberg. And of course, Königsberg is still in Russia mm -hmm. as Kaliningrad. So... Um, but that was very much the idea when it, when the idea of the what we were going to do with the German fleet came up, and Churchill suggested, of course, that they should sink them, and uh, Stalin um, immediately perked up and said that if Mr. Churchill wants to sink his portion of the, uh, of the German fleet, he was quite welcome to do so, but he was going to keep his. Mm -hmm. So it was a much more old-fashioned view. And there was far less of this high moral tone that you were likely to find with Americans and to some extent with the British. I think the high moral tone or the highest moral tone was with the, with, was with the um, United States. Um, the French, to some degree, were just in it for whatever they could get out of it. And they, of course, ended up with a much smaller amount of, uh, much smaller amount of territory than, um, than any of the other powers, and that was largely uh, the pressure that was exerted by Churchill to make sure the French got a seat at the table. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me ask uh, about this. You, you say, um, not to quote you back to yourself, that, that the uh, Russians' objectives were uh, more or less traditional. The, the thing that I, I don't find terribly traditional about that is that um, in the 19th century when the Russians had uh, taken uh, territories that were not ethnically Russian, and they had been doing this since the 16th century. Uh, they left the uh, the extra Russian ethnicities where they were, um, either to um, how, how does one say exploit them or hold them hostage or something like this. Yeah. But here the plan was rather different. They were going to expel them. Why? Well, of course they've done that. To, sorry to interrupt you. They've yep. done that to the Volga Germans during mm -hmm. the war, hadn't they? Yep, so they, yeah. I mean, they had gained a little bit of experience of banishing the Volga Germans. Um, and um, but no, I think this this was to be a permanent thing, and um, I think there were many precedents for this, weren't there? There was the exchanges between the Greeks and the Turks in uh, at the, just after the First World War. <coughs> Sorry, um, which uh, lots of people thought there was a sort of respectability in this idea of moving entire populations. The same thing had been discussed with a view to the Germans in Czechoslovakia during the war, that the only solution to the problem of the Sudetenland was to actually get rid of the Germans in Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. There was this fantasy that these things could be done without severe loss of life. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, sensible men sitting around tables during the war would say, yes, all we need to do is to move these three million Germans, and that will be done humanely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the most fantastic part about it in hindsight, is that each time this had been attempted, and you're quite right to mention um, the, the Turks and uh, the, the Greeks, or you, you might even uh, mention 
the the Armenians. I mean, any yes. large dis, any large displacement of, of population over a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand always resulted in a mass calamity. Don't, don't you think they probably knew, or are they just denying the fact that they could they could do this safely, so to say? Um, I don't honestly know. I mean, if they didn't know. Um, I suspect they were probably just pulling the wool over their own eyes, you know, uh, does it matter? And remember, these were bloodthirsty times. You mm-hmm. were at the end of a very bloody war. Mm-hmm. And it was probably very easy to convince yourself that breaking a few eggs in the process of making the omelette was not going to be that serious, given the amount of crimes the Germans had committed. Mm-hmm. So uh, from that point of view, it was easy to convince yourself that there was nothing too immoral about what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And you were guaranteeing a future peace. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Um, uh, sorry. Um, uh, so I suspect they didn't think too hard about it. Yeah, I, th- I think you're probably right. Let me ask this. Uh, what one, one wonders whether uh, a failure to draw a distinction between Nazis and Germans was, uh, at least as a pretext, at, at, at the heart of this. Uh, how did the various Allied powers um, line up on the question of the difference between the way Nazis should be treated and the way in which Germans should be treated? Well, at the beginning of the war, of course, they didn't even really know what Nazis were. I mean, they, they, you know, they, quite a lot of people thought they were just fighting the Prussians again. And there seemed to be a remarkable little amount of knowledge about what uh, Nazism was about and what the totalitarian state was about. I mean, look at the evidence, uh, the questions asked at Nuremberg. Some of them seem remarkably naive now. Uh, and, of course, the, the sort of way that the German opposition to Hitler was dismissed, saying, you know, people like Anthony Eden in this country would say, you know, if these people are honestly opposed to Hitler, they should be able to, they should stand up and say that they don't like Hitler, you know. Um, extraordinary naivety of people who had no idea what it was like to live in a totalitarian state. So there, there was that a level of naivety. There doesn't seem to have been... Uh, or maybe that the knowledge of the atrocities being committed by the Nazis, it was there if you wanted it. But there was a remarkably little use of it in propaganda until after the war. Uh, the famous film of the liberation of, of the camp at Belsen, which is what a lot of our footage comes from when we go back to looking at concentration camps. But that film, which was then shown after it was made all over Britain and probably all over the world, um, that was probably the first time that the concentration camps were used as propaganda mm-hmm. um, uh, for our cause. And yet, that was after the war had finished. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the Allies knew about the concentration camps. They may not have known exactly what went on in them, uh, not the precise details of what went on in them, but they certainly knew they existed. But they didn't make any point, they didn't really dwell on it in, in, in propaganda terms. Maybe because they, they burnt their fingers a little bit with propaganda in the First World War, of all the sort of raping of nuns and that sort of thing mm-hmm. that was current during the First World War. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the Russians, on the other hand, did use... Uh, they did, yes. yes. a lot. I mean, particularly in the... I'm thinking of the writings of, um, I can't remember his name, Ehrenberg. Uh, yes, Ilya Ehrenberg. Ilya Ehrenberg, yeah. Um, and, and they were... Uh, they, they didn't... Um, I think at the beginning of the war, they did draw a distinction between uh, Nazis and Germans. But near the end of the war, I think if you look at the propaganda, they... they did not uh, draw this decision. Well, of course, they, they did put up these posters everywhere with Stalin's words saying, you know, uh, Hitler's come and go, but the German people will always you know, be with mm-hmm. us, i.e. that, you know, we're not fighting the German people, which was very different, of course, to the way they actually treated the German people. Mm-hmm. And, and Stalin does appear to have been uh, encouraging this sort of retribution, which was, a, you know, to allow his soldiers really to enjoy a sort of wild party of terror which uh, and then rein them in later um, but to give the boys some fun you know which he clearly did believe that the boys were having a good time and that they should be given a good time because they'd fought hard and there was an element of that mm-hmm. yeah no I, I find uh, one of the things that always comes up in, in in discussions of atrocities of this sort and on this scale is the conflict between um, the desire of soldiers with perhaps the political allowance of their higher-ups to uh, rape, pillage, and burn, and then the notion of military discipline, uh, which, especially in the German case, we know that, the, that, uh, that, that some Wehrmacht officers uh, 
objected to the use of Wehrmacht soldiers in, in atrocities. And were there any similar sorts of cases in the, in, the, uh, in the Russian army, in the Red Army? Well, there are one or two cases. I, I can't remember the, exactly all the... There was one man, Lev Kopolov, who was sent off to, um, to the Gulag because he objected to the way the soldiers were behaving. Uh, I think he, he is a, a fairly famous case. Um, uh, there were instances where Soviet officers objected to the behavior of their men, but there was always a risk, of course, that their men would turn around and shoot them. I mean, you're right in saying that um, you cannot behave like this and be a disciplined fighting force at the same time. So um, when I said earlier on that uh, I don't have a lot of evidence about the way that the British behaved, on the other hand, I would doubt it if we were to find, I would doubt we would, be, we would find a huge number of uh, rapes of this sort carried out by British soldiers for the very simple reason we had a rather an old-fashioned army with a very strong um, stress on discipline and where officers um, commanded and didn't expect their command to be questioned. And that a man running around madly after a woman is a, a source of chaos if you are a, an officer commanding an army. Mm-hmm. So it can only be, it can only exist if it is tolerated higher up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. The, uh, one of the things that you read about the uh, Russian atrocities and the rapes in particular, that it, it, it wasn't the frontline troops that were involved yes. in it, but in fact it was uh, the, the... The investment the, troops. Yes, yes, exactly, the investment troops. Maybe you could, is that true? Or? Well, of course, then they would be much more, uh, they, you know, they wouldn't have the job of, of fighting the enemy. They would just have the job of uh, occupying, which means that they wouldn't be in danger of getting shot or, or destroying the, the, the military advance by what they were doing. So it would make sense that it was the investment troops that carried out the, most of the atrocities. It didn't always follow that pattern, because if you take the first great atrocity committed by the Russians on, on German soil, which was in October 1944 at Nemersdorf in East Prussia, they literally broke over the border for the first time and raped and murdered 80 women in the village, mm-hmm. and, and quite a number of old men as well. So, I mean, you know, that, that was not an investment force. That was just a... And that was just uh, clearly a, a little warning shot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, would you say it's the case that the uh, Red Army went into these areas, uh, Silesia, Pomerania, um, East Prussia, and so on and so forth, uh, with the intention of raping, pillaging, and burning? I mean, was that they, they were given to know that they could do this? They were certainly given to know that they could do this. Um, and, and all the evidence in, in Solzhenitsyn, for example, writes about this as well. I think all the evidence points to the fact that either they were directly told they could do it, or they were told that we will turn a blind eye to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so do we have... I, I know that uh, the prospect of uh, mass rape, rape is a kind of terror weapon, was, uh, was, a, a, was an important part of German propaganda during the end of the war. Um, and, and, and I've even heard arguments that claim that the, uh, that the amount of uh, raping, pillaging, and burning that was, uh, was uh, actually accomplished, um, was, uh, our understanding of that was exaggerated by Nazi propaganda. Um, it, it, do you believe that's true? The, the, uh, what during uh, before the war ended, uh, yes. that Goebbels was using it. I think Goebbels was using it, using it in order to... Um, to tighten morale at home, to get people to fight much harder. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was necessarily exaggerating. And all that we learn from the accounts of people who lived through those early days of the Russian occupation, you know, everything that we learn points to the fact that they all say, you know, not only was Goebbels not wrong, um, but, uh, you know, it's worse than anything that Goebbels said was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So... Um, they had, I think, because by that stage of the war, not many people had very much respect for Goebbels anyhow, they had uh, tended to dismiss this uh, Goebbels' warnings as, uh, as something that was mere propaganda. Mm-hmm. And when, of course, it then happened, they said, well, he wasn't that wrong after all, because this is exactly as he described it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, when the uh, Soviets uh, arrived uh, in these German areas... Um, and first, uh, first propagated these atrocities. That, w- w- did a, did a kind of mass flight uh, 
occur? Yes, they did, but far too late, of course, in many areas. The local Gauleiters were very slow to give permission for for the people to um, uh, form these treks, largely, I think, because Hitler didn't, uh, was pathologically opposed to any form of retreat, and therefore he wanted the people to form sort of civilian armies and fight back. Uh, and therefore the orders or the permission was granted very, very late in most cases um, to uh, abandon these cities as the Russians arrived and leading to much greater carnage than would have happened had they been granted permission earlier on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the, 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 the Nazi government didn't make any real provision or attempt logistically to help these people move? Uh, not really. I think you know, in isolated cases, as in Breslau, for example, I think uh, several thousand people were allowed to move eventually by that decision. It's very, very late. And remember, it was a very, very cold winter you know, when this is happening against the background of, of frost and snow and lots of people dying of cold as they you know, uh, are, are forced to march hundreds of miles to, uh, across the Oder or to whether it's considered that they would be safe. Mm-hmm. I see. We, we haven't talked about uh, the, the uh, Nazis' allies, and they were, of course, encountered first, at least in their settled populations, that is in Romania and Hungary. How were the Romanians yes. and, and Hungarians treated? Well, quite badly, because I think, you know, the, the Russians were quite sort of capable of raping anyone. I mean, they raped Bulgarian women, for example, where Bulgaria was always perceived to be, you know, quite close to the Russians, the uh, Bulgarian Russian languages being quite sort of close to one another. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I think I think that it's probably true they even rape people in the Ukraine, you know. So uh, uh, the raping was pretty indiscriminate. Um, there, perhaps it wasn't used so much as a weapon. But um, So this definitely happened. Um, but then, of course, once Germany was losing the war, I think countries like Hungary, that had been a very firm ally of the Germans, suddenly sort of looked around to see if they could get a better settlement. I think that's probably just human nature, isn't it? But mm-hmm. um, ultimately, of course, you know, all these countries are going to be, um, were going to be assimilated into this uh, Russian uh, uh, area of, of control, of sphere mm-hmm. of influence. Mm-hmm. What, what happened to the... Uh, the reason I ask this is because I, I actually studied the settlement of uh, Germans in uh, Romanian, ter- what is now Romanian territory in, the, I guess it was the 13th or 14th century, the, the Siebenbergen um, Germans. What happened to the Siebenbergen Germans when the um, Soviets arrived in Romania? Well, the, the, the Siebenbergen, of course, many of them were, were, were quite prominent Nazis. I suppose when you quite often found with that. these ethnic Germans that because they felt threatened, once they heard this, the strong man in Berlin, Adolf Hitler, you know, they flocked to his side because they, you know, they felt threatened by the idea of being surrounded by Slavs or, in this particular instance, Romanians. And you know, there was quite a prominent Nazi movement, I think, among the Siebenborgen. After the war, many of them were rounded up and put into camps, and some of them um, fled back to Germany. But I think in the instance of Romania, it wasn't particularly savage. Um, Again, a lot of Hungarian Germans were forced out, but not nearly as many as in Czechoslovakia, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the so-called Donau, um, uh, um, Danube Slavs, uh, sorry, the Danube uh, Swabians, they called them in mm-hmm. Hungary. Um, and where it was particularly savage was in Yugoslavia, where there were a number of German settlements that had been there for hundreds of years. And those people were generally slaughtered or pushed into camps where they died of disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a larger population were the uh, the Sudeten Germans. Um, yes. And now, now here we have kind of an interesting thing where, uh, in which uh, there's a, there's a there's a certain amount of piling on, I guess as we would call it in America. I don't know if you have that expression in 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 uh, the UK, uh, where, where the uh, the Slovaks and, and and the Czechs get in on the act. Yes. Well, once, of course, the Russian army had arrived, then, then there was all hell was let loose. Um, to explain the savagery of all that, I personally can't find that the, the occupation in itself is quite enough to explain quite why the Czechs and the Slovaks behaved in quite such a savage way towards the Sudeten Germans. I think that, you know, there is an element of you know, let's get rid of them, you know, they've always been trouble, and now we're going to deal with them once and for all. So there's an element of a sort of 
revolution there taking place at the same time. Remember that these Germans were often the richer members of the community. Um, they were the ones with the nice houses. Um, they were the ones that, uh, you know, who had the biggest farms. A lot of the nobility in uh, uh, Western Czechoslovakia was German in origin or spoke German at home. A lot of the richer people in the big towns were Germans or spoke German at home. So this was an opportunity, I think, to get rid of them once and for all. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was greed. I mean, to be quite honest, you know, it was going up and seeing a really nice house and then, you know, getting rid of the inhabitants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is kind of a final solution uh, quality to, 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 to many of these uh, spates of ethnic cleansing. You know, we're going to be done with this once and for all. We're simply going to push them into uh, the... Uh, Klein Deutschland, I guess is what you'd call it. Yeah, and, yeah, and there's not going to be any more Gross Deutschland. Let me, let me ask about uh, the um, the sudden appearance of uh, of the nationality Austrians. Um, I, I know that I, I have some Austrian friends, people I know, and they, they will always very clearly point out that they're Austrians and not Germans. Um, yeah. is, is this uh, is this related to what happened to me? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time. My mother was actually born in Austria. Um, uh, I spent a lot of time in Austria, but I'm always quite amused by the fact now that um, people speak Austrian dialects now who before the war would certainly have only spoken Hochdeutsch. So what they, what there's a, a particular stress at the end of the war was laid on the idea that we are very different from the Germans. Now, before the war, Austria was referred to universally as German Austria, mm-hmm. and Austrians referred to themselves as Germans. The word Austria was very little used um, without the word German to qualify it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After the war, of course, certain styles of dress became... Uh, a sign that you were actually being Austrian rather than German. The, the, the famous Styrian suit, for example, the same famous Styrian hat that you'll see around the streets of Vienna to this day. All these things were adopted as a sign that the wearer was an Austrian and not a German, and therefore was not to be despised by the by the Allies. Uh, and this had been um, calculated to some degree by the so-called Moscow Declaration in 1943, which was a kind of cunning little move uh, on the part of the Allies to tell the Austrians essentially that they wouldn't be punished if they rose up against the Germans. I mean, this is just makes sense in terms of strategy anyhow, whether you like it or not, you know, to try and break up Hitler's empire. But uh, this is not to say that some Austrians weren't completely disillusioned by Hitler, but then, then quite a lot of Germans were as well. Um, by 1943, but there was a little uh, rebellion that took place just as the uh, Russians closed in on Vienna. And um, but otherwise, I think probably it, it was really a part of Austrians sort of saving their their, their skins mm-hmm. at the end of the war. By by, and this then was then worked into the notion of the new republic that was founded after the war that every chance was given to stress that Austria's, Austria's differences from Germany rather than the things that they had in common, even to the degree of certain writers like Grillparzer, for example, achieved an enormous importance after 1945 that he perhaps didn't have before 1938. Um, so certain poets, writers, musicians, and that sort of thing was stressed to a degree that because they were Austrian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm reminded that this kind of thing still happens. I have a, a friend who's also an academic from the UK, and I, I'd known him for, I guess, quite a long time. And, and uh, he uh, he had, had lived in London, I think, for a very long time, but he was from the north. And I, I remember seeing him one day, and he informed me that after devolution, he was Scottish. Because that's what he said. He said, I'm Scottish now. I'm it's no longer English. Uh, so yeah, the, the, this sort of thing is, is familiar. Well, Gordon Brown doesn't think like that. Yeah, no, no. I don't, yeah, exactly. So... Um, uh, is there any way to quantify the uh, the number of rapes that took place? I think that would be very difficult. Whenever you have rapes, the minimum figure, the number of people who report, say, to a hospital, um, is always going to be uh, smaller than the number of people raped, isn't it? So, for example, with the biggest recorded instance of rape by the French army at Freudenstadt, for example, in the Black Forest, um, we know that some, uh, off the top of my head, 600 women went to hospital afterwards to report what had happened. But that is obviously going to be a minimum figure. 
Um, there will be women who didn't go to the hospital, or girls whose mothers told them that they couldn't go to the hospital and they were to cover it up in some way. So um, it will always be a minimum figure. Mm-hmm. We can only just take a stab at it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these people, they didn't have anywhere to go. All that sh- the evidence that you would have would be the number of people who reported, for example, who tried to get backstreet abortions, who reported the incidence of venereal disease that was also being spread by the rapists. So, you know, we have that evidence, but it's not going to tell us how many people were physically raped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It'll give us a, a small indication. I, I, I do, I'm... That this is uh, purely conjectural, but is, is there a class of people in uh, Germany who were born after the war who can identify themselves as uh, having uh, Russian parentage? Yes, I mean that, that, that were the so-called Russian babies. They were called, um, and the Russian babies. Um, we don't know how many there are of them. I mean, I, quite a lot of these children were aborted. Um, but uh, we we hear that Stalin was rather keen on the idea that you know the German race was going to be in some way diluted by all this Slavic blood, and it was a, he thought that was a rather good thing. Um, uh, there were clearly quite a lot of these people born, and also on the other side, let's face it, you know there are an awful lot of uh, children fired by the. Um, forces on the western side as well, mm-hmm. including quite a lot of mixed race um, babies sired by American soldiers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, which caused a certain amount of interest and consternation because these children were a, a different color to most Germans. Mm-hmm. Let, let's go ahead and talk about the uh, uh, the Western Allies then. Uh, what, what was um, what, what orders were they given when they entered the Reich? Well, I think that the, the most famous uh, order was the non-fraternization order, which meant that a completely unworkable arrangement that uh, Americans and British soldiers both subscribed to this idea that there would be no fraternization with the enemy, and that, you know, if a child was to break down in tears in front of them, they were to ignore the child, not speak to it or pick it up or anything like that, you know, a completely unworkable thing. Uh, uh, this was dropped fairly soon. Um, and I think very quickly people saw the absurdity of the situation where they, you know, they, they, they couldn't actually communicate with the conquered people, mm-hmm. uh, that it was an unworkable thing. But it was, it, that was uh, an indication of, uh, uh, that gets us slightly back to Morgenthau. You know, this was an idea that these people had behaved so badly um, that, uh, you know, they cannot be even given the slightest bit of um, encouragement encouragement by the occupying forces. And it, it takes me back to, of course, to that line of Roosevelt's where he said that the, the Germans had behaved so badly. I'm probably misquoting this. He said they should have soup for breakfast, soup for lunch, and soup for dinner. And that was the punishment that Roosevelt wanted to mete out. Um, you know, they were to be given this cold soup, Mm-hmm. Of course, all this radically changes when um, Allied thinkers, principally the Americans, actually understand that they need the Germans after the war. And this doesn't take long to dawn on them. People like Patton, of course, had a great deal of sympathy for the Germans, sometimes sympathy for the wrong Germans. But uh, sooner or later, of course, everybody came round to this view, or a great many people came round to this view, that you know the, the Germans were needed in order to fight the Bolsheviks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what, uh, were there reports of Allied atrocities um, during the initial phases of the occupation? Did the American press see them or report them, or the British press? Yes, I mean, there was a, there was a book by a man called Keeling who, who details these atrocities, and I think that was published very much at the time. Um, it details a number of Allied atrocities. Um, I mean, you know, the whole village is destroyed. Um, clearly, a lot of people were, were killed uh, out of hand. Um, and a lot of Germans have been worked up into this idea that they were being liberated and couldn't quite understand that the Allies actually didn't go in there with the idea of liberation. This idea has really caught on with the Germans themselves now, so that often when you ask a German, you know, um, about this time, they say, you know, we were being liberated. And uh, this is a silly notion because I don't think very many uh, Western soldiers who were occupying Germany in 1945 saw their job as liberating the Germans. They saw their job as invading Germany 
and getting rid of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. What, did the uh, Judge Advocates General Court uh, get involved in this? Were there, was anybody um, uh, was anybody prosecuted for atrocities? Yes, I mean we know that certain people were executed for rape in the American Army, for example. There were executions after Freudenstadt in the French Army. Of course, those records I don't think are accessible, but we do have sort of there is reliable evidence that the French did punish people for um, this, these sort of atrocities. Uh, so there was, there were uh, uh, quite a lot of, of cases where people were punished. Um, there was a lot of brawling, obviously, that went on in Germany. And I think, you know, the, the military courts did pass quite draconian sentences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. So um, I think that after the hot phase, this happened during the hot phase, I, during the occupation when soldiers were still fighting. I don't think you'll find very much punishment was needed out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me ask you about this. I, I, um, there is a part of your book that deals with a question that I've always had. A, a lot of Americans, actually I think the majority of Americans, uh, claim to have some sort of German ancestry. I know I do. Uh, and, you know, here in the Midwest, you walk around and you look people and they look German. Um, yes. And, and uh, in, in 1945, I think that was probably even more so the case. Uh, did, was, there any, uh, was there any worry on the part of the Allied command about these people? And did they uh, show any sympathy toward the Germans because of their ethnic heritage? Well, certainly that we are told that, that, that they needed a lot of convincing. And part of the business that they were told that all people should visit the concentration camps in order to convince them what they were fighting and that the Germans were deeply immoral people. And this was considered much more important in the American army because many of these Midwestern people of Germanic origin, as as you say, um, didn't really know why they were fighting. A lot of them had only arrived very recently in the United States. Um, You know, their first language was still German. Mm -hmm. Um, There is one instance which I mention in the book of... uh, uh, a, a Jewish uh, American who spoke uh, uh, German was traveling with another, uh, with a German American, and suddenly they take a detour to go into some little cottage where they find some man sitting over his beer or something like that. And the man suddenly looks up with his mouth open and says, That is unser Zepp, that's our Joe, you know. And he'd literally come to visit his parents. Mm-hmm. And their job had been sort of going around interviewing prisoners of war or whatever, you know. And this was a German American. But you know, he wasn't so far back. Um, he probably arrived just before the war. And therefore his linguistic abilities were very useful. But it was important to have a, a strong propaganda within the American army to make sure these German-Americans didn't get too sympathetic towards the occupied Germans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So This, of course, doesn't happen in the British army because there were very, very few of these people in Britain. Mm-hmm. What, what, what provisions did the Allies make after the wild times, let's say, after the hot phase, as you call it, uh, to, to actually feed Germany? I, I suspect that the harvest didn't come in completely in 1945 and um, that there, was, uh, there, was, there were obviously food shortages and perhaps even starvation. Maybe you could talk about that. Well, they took very poor provision, quite honestly, and uh, there was a series of very bad winters. Uh, the harvest in 1945 was very, very bad because there were these late frosts in, in, in May. Um, and there was snow in May, in, even in the warmer parts of Western Germany. So it was a very, very cold year. And then, of course, you had the sort of miserable winters of 46 and 47, when many, many people died, and they didn't have roofs over their, hel- uh, their heads. And then just simply, the, the, um, you know, the laws of war say that you've got to feed uh, your occupied um, enemy. But uh, there was too little provision made to uh, allot uh, food for the feeding of the occupied Germans. And therefore, the calorie count quite often came down to around 900 calories a day for Germans. Remember, they were supplementing these things where they could by selling anything they could in order to uh, buy things on the black market. So any figure that we have about the calorie count is um, quite often you have to factor it up a little bit because they were trading in some way by selling off their broken mice and cups to GIs or whatever they were doing. Mm-hmm. But um, that certainly a lot of Germans died from uh, diseases caused by um, undernourishment uh, in the first two years after the war. Mm-hmm. Let's talk for just a second about uh, denazification and the uh, disposition of um, POWs, first about denazification. What, 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 they rounded up the Nazis. Where did they put them? They put them into, depending where, what they were. 
If they were Wehrmacht prisoners, then they were put into big Wehrmacht camps, and very soon the Americans uh, themselves decided they didn't want to keep these prisoners of war, and some of them were then uh, sent back to England, where they remained for a couple of years, I think, off the top of my head, and some of them were sort of leased out to the French, who I think um, had large amounts of uh, prisoners of war, which they put to work as slaves. Um, the, The... category of prisoners of war as defined by the Geneva and Hague Conventions was essentially abolished so that um, and new terms were issued which allowed them not to treat them quite as you treat an honorable enemy. Um, so whereas America very quickly washed their hands of these uh, Wehrmacht soldiers either by reallotting them to other um, Western uh, powers um, they did put all people tainted with political crimes, i.e. people who'd been in the SS, for example, into camps and kept them there for a long time. A lot of these camps were very, very brutal uh, and, uh, and lethal. Um, and uh, one particular, uh, one can almost understand the temptation for doing this, one particular method, of course, was to push them into old concentration camps. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the old concentration camps were... Uh, reused for these uh, people who've been deemed politically criminal. So Dachau, for example, is the main center for America of um, housing uh, essentially these political prisoners. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, now, now, one thing that interested me in the book was, uh, and, and maybe I don't uh, remember this correctly, but the, the Soviets had asked even during the war that they would be allowed to take a certain number of um, German prisoners back to Russia for the purposes of uh, rebuilding. Is that correct? Yes, I think that that is that is correct. Yeah, and they and they did actually take them back because one of the things you know Russians will point out to you when you're in Moscow or someplace they'll point to buildings and say yes that was built by German prisoners of war. How many of them were actually taken back to Russia to be used as laborers? Do you, do you well, I don't have a figure at the top of my head, but I mean huge numbers and huge numbers of scientists as well and uh, all those people who were supposed to be useful in rebuilding the Soviet Union after the war. I mean, it's one of those facts of history that the space programs of both America and mm-hmm. the Soviet Union were essentially carried out by, uh, by the German scientists um, who had been, uh, one way or another, um, taken home as uh, war booty um, and entire uh, factories full of technicians were taken back to Russia and many of them didn't come home until the mid-50s. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, they took them home. I mean, another instance is if you take the castle in Warsaw, which had been destroyed, of course, by the, by the Germans during the war, that was entirely rebuilt by German prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I should say that uh, the Americans um, did a little bit of this. Uh, on a personal note, my grandfather, who was a uh, wheat farmer and cattleman in central Kansas, um, so to say, owned some German prisoners in in, uh, in 1943, 44, and 45. They were POWs from the North African campaign, and they lived in. They were scattered all over the United States, but this was in Central Kansas, in Peabody, in Chase County, and and uh, they um, they actually built toys in addition to all the work that they did. Some of which I own today, oddly enough. So it, and they were repatriated later. Many of them did not want to go back. Yeah, Germany. Well, you could, you could see why. Yeah, you? No, you certainly could see why. Yes, that's exactly right. So l- let me ask you a, a kind of a, a, a couple of broad questions. Do we know how many, uh, as the um, demographers call them, excess deaths there were as a result of this punishing occupation from the period 1945, May 1945, to the early 50s? Well, these figures are very disputed. Um, I think we have a figure of the number of deaths caused by the expulsions to be about 2.25 million civilians. And then you could obviously add the deaths of well over a million prisoners of war to that. You would then have to add to that in some way the number of Germans who died because they were so neglected after the war, who died of hunger or cold or whatever, in the immediate months after the end of the war. I mean, we are looking at a figure between three and four million, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I want to ask you about, um, we've talked about this a little bit, but how is the 
the the final days, I guess the result of the war, including the expulsions and the um, territorial readjustment and ethnic cleansing and that sort of thing. How is it remembered today? And the, the reason this is particularly interesting to me is I, I stayed a summer once in a town south of Koblenz uh, where, where my host family had a map of East Prussia, uh, a very old map of East Prussia prominently displayed um, in the room I was staying. How, how do uh, Germans think about this today? Well, it's funny that, you know, I was I was uh, in Wiesbaden about a year ago and an American friend of mine who lives in Germany and speaks wonderful German and that sort of thing was joking with a German about people being typical of this town and typical of that. And oh, that's a typical Rhinelander's point of view and that sort of thing. And I said, how on earth can you talk about typical reactions of different regions of Germany given the enormous demographic shake-up that took place after 1945. Mm-hmm. I mean, whole areas of Germany were restocked from these different areas. I mean, all the Germans who came from Pomerania were stuffed into the British zone. So, you know, all around Lübeck, for example, on the Baltic around there, were huge camps where these people were brought in, sort of ragged, half-starved individuals who had survived the onslaught of the Russians and then the retribution of the Poles after the end of the war. And these people were filled into these camps, and when eventually, you know, the camps were closed, they settled in those areas. So, demographically, Germany is not what it was. You know, it's very hard to say even a city like Munich is typically Bavarian. I think, um, you know, it is no longer the sort of jolly... Catholic beer-drinking city that it was before 1945 because of the number of people who were settled there after the end of the war. So it it has radically changed the demographic structure of Germany. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there a, a, this just out of curiosity, is there any sort of tourist trade in in Germany that will take people back to... uh, A lot. They tend to be quite old people. um, And these Heimatgruppen, um, I saw them myself in Königsberg, Kaliningrad, you know, when I went there oh, nearly 20 years ago now. There's these groups of old people that come. There were a couple of people who who lived there. I think there were seven Germans who, after 1985 or so, had managed to find their way back to Kaliningrad. Mm-hmm. And two of these old Germans, one of whom had been in Lithuania or something like that and worked on a Russian ship and then he'd installed himself there and was making a sort of decent uh, amount of pocket money by showing people around the surviving bits of Königsberg and these buses came in and and, um, even then 20 years ago all the time of these elderly Germans wanting to revisit their roots so yes it is quite prominent in some areas of course they're not very welcome um particularly in Poland, for example, where, you know, there's always this neurosis that they'll want to come and claim their land back. Mm -hmm. I have heard from a a correspondent, somebody wrote to me recently, saying that he came from the Sudetenland and that he'd been offered the family house back. So, obviously, the Czech policy has changed now because they were very resistant to this idea before. Mm -hmm. Has any land actually been exchanged? I mean, is is it... I don't know. It hasn't. But, obviously, with with the joining of the European Union by both the Czech Republic and Poland, um, this was a bit of a stumbling block because theoretically as a citizen of the the European Union, I should be allowed to buy a house wherever I please. Obviously, both the Poles and the Czechs were initially very frightened that this was going to mean a huge influx of Germans into their countries trying to buy back their own houses, their old houses. Um, I think I think that you know that all these people got so old and set in their ways that it was unlikely to happen. But there was a considerable neurosis about it. Mm-hmm. But there's no sort of irredentism where Germans are bu- buying up land and you know. I'm no, to... I haven't seen any indication of that at all. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's, that's... And presumably there would be a great deal of resistance to selling these properties. But from this uh, letter I had from this um, man who'd actually married an English woman he'd met while he'd been in a prison of war camp here. And it's an interesting story. Uh, this man had been offered his house back by the local authorities. So clearly the Czechs have actually um, changed their minds about this policy. And at mm-hmm. least to a limited degree, they're actually allowing Germans to buy property in the Sudetenland. I also hear from a friend who teaches at the university in Prague that that land is still very, very empty. 
Mm-hmm. A lot of villages are largely empty in the former German parts of Czechoslovakia. And it may well be for this reason of actually stopping all these villages from falling down that they're changing their policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard this as well. And this is also, I think, true in Western Poland. What, what do the Poles think about Western Poland? Do they, they consider it? I mean, I, you know, again, I have Polish friends, I, I, but I haven't ever um, talked to them about it. What do they think about these uh, territories? Well, the people who are in Western Poland, of course, came from Eastern Poland, mm-hmm. the bits grabbed by the Russians. So they come from the other side of the River Bug. Yeah. So they didn't have a particular view on the Germans. Uh, and what's more, that they were driven from their homes as well. So, you know, they, were, they suffered in, in a way, in a similar way in 1945 to the Germans who were driven out. If you go to a, a city like Roxlav, well, Roxlav now, which was the former German city of Breslau, uh, all the churches have been renamed uh, from the churches of Lvov. So, you know, this church that you think is a red-brick German Gothic church has got the name of a church in Lvov because the people of Breslau largely come from Lvov. Mm-hmm. And the university, the, you know, the famous Brahms Festival um, Overture that you know and everybody knows, you know, the Academic Festival Overture, which was written to the University of Breslau. That building, beautiful Baroque building, has been recreated, is the old University of Lvov now with all the traditions of the University of Lvov. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Are there any, um, this is a, my, my final question about the book and then we can move on, because uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Central Europe is full of um, uh, monuments of various kinds and remembrances. Are, are there any uh, monuments or remembrances to the people that uh, suffered after the uh, collapse of the Nazis? Well, I'm thinking of the top of my head, um, you know, these things were not always, I mean, the old days when there was the Ministry of the ex you know, it, it was slightly more legitimate than it is now and has been since Ostpolitik. But if you go to, in Austria, uh, near the little town of Retz, I've seen a monument which is directed against the expulsions of the um, German Moravians, what they often call Sudetenländer, but then they were essentially the Moravians who lived in the south. And there is a monument there that is high on a hill looking out over the Czech Republic and, of course, commemorates the expulsions from the city of Znaim, which is just across the border. So there are monuments of this sort, but there, there, there aren't that many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you, there is this woman in Berlin who is trying to have a monument erected in Berlin, you know, uh, to join the other monuments that are being set up at the moment to remember the uh, plight of the ex-Berlinese. And she, of course, is considered a mixed blessing in Germany. You know, many people want to despise her because she is what they call an avid guest figure, you know, an eternal yesterday's person. Mm-hmm. You know, I think many people in Germany, particularly on the left, say that we've got to move on. We, we either atone for our sins or we, we move on and we don't look that way because it's no longer respectable to refer to the city of Breslau as Breslau. It must be Rochard now. Um, so a lot of people don't want to hear this. But for every person who doesn't want to hear it, of course, there are people who do want to hear it. And who are, uh, uh, they're not all people who are actually quite old now. These people have a, a way of influencing their sons and grandchildren, you know, into being just as vehement in their condemnation of the post-world such the settlement as, uh, as they themselves are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there are these people who are considered by some to be politically dangerous in Germany because they, they, they refuse to accept the post-war settlement in some way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, on, on, on a kind of parallel note, I know that the uh, United States Congress just issued, I, I think it was yesterday, an apology for slavery on the part of... I think uh, we've uh, done one of those over here as well. Uh, have you really? I mean, is, are, are the, I think Tony Blair issued Yeah, one. no, that, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, I, I'd like to personally apologize for slavery as well. The, uh, is there any sort of similar movement in I mean, the Russians are going to apologize for expelling the Germans, or the Germans are going to apologize for... I haven't heard that, yeah. and I haven't heard any... Um, I, think that, I think that Havel came closest in, in uh, the Czech Republic to saying something that was tantamount to an apology. I'm not sure it was in so many words that, but yeah. I think there, is, there has been an acknowledgement. I don't think that the twins in Poland would be likely to issue that sort of apology. No, I, get it. Yeah, I, I sort of doubt it. Yeah, but it's a, it's a, we live in an age of, uh, of, of rampant apologizing for um, pretty much everything. Someone should write a book about that. Well, Giles, thank you very much for taking um, uh, the time today to talk to us. Uh, let me ask you our traditional final question here. Um, you, you have a book that's about to come out here in the United States. Maybe you could talk about it a little bit. Yes, it's, we're going to the other side of the war now, and um, we're going backwards. It's a book about 1938 and what 
uh, took place in 1938, and uh, uh, it describes 1938 as the watershed year in Nazi Germany when Hitler essentially casts off the electoral alliance with the right that it brought into power and essentially introduces a, a, a full-blooded Nazi regime where his party members dominate in, in all aspects of German, German life. So it describes essentially that the events of that year with the Anschluss that merges Germany and Austria um, uh, to uh, obviously the invasion of Austria, the invasion of the Sudetenland or the occupation of the Sudetenland, uh, Reichskristallnacht, which was the first um, uh, state-organized pogrom against the Jews um, to take place in Germany since the Middle Ages, and uh, all the dramatic events of that year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see, and that book is called 1938? Is it? It's called uh, 1938 Hitler's Gamble, and it will come out with basic books in November. Well, uh, I look forward to reading it, and I hope that we can have you on the show again um, after you get done with what is probably a, a, a very long um, uh, uh, author's tour, I imagine. They'll put you on the road. Are you going to make it over here to the United States at all to promote that? Well, I would love to. I, we are talking about that, but nothing has been decided yet. Well, uh, yeah, I, um, um, Iowa City is not usually on uh, the, the stop. Well, actually, sometimes it is. It's odd. odd, odd. But, um, but anyway, it'd be, it'd, be, it'd be lovely to talk to you while you're here about the book. So um, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. It's a great honor. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Giles McDonough about his book, After the Reich, The Brutal History of the Allied Occupation. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Hope you have a great week. Music.